I don't know if you're like me. I hope you're not like me. I'm a little weird. It's true. Thank you, Linda, for laughing at me. Appreciate it. But you know, when I read through the Gospels, and then I get to the book of Acts, I'm reading about the early church. You know, you read about these titans of the faith, the apostles, the A-team, right? Peter, James, and John. And these amazing things that God did through them. And then, and then the Apostle Paul. I mean, when you look at the apostles, they are inspiring. What God was able to do through just a few men to change the world, the effects of which we're still experiencing in the here and now. And while I find them inspiring, if you can sympathize with kind of my plight, I do find them to a degree difficult to relate to. They're inspiring, but I don't know if the apostles are all that relatable. I mean, think about it for a moment. These were a group of men, a collection of men, hand-selected by Jesus Christ. Men that were going about their lives, their jobs, their occupations, when Jesus walked along the shore and said, follow me. That's radical, right? To be hand-selected by Jesus, the, the apostles, while they had their own shortcomings, they became pillars of the faith, pillars of the church, champions of Christianity. God would use many of these men to author the New Testament. Not exactly things we find really relatable, right? I mean, good grief, their names are, are so unique that they will be, we're told in Revelation 21 verse 14, written on the cornerstones of the new Jerusalem in heaven. I mean, though it shouldn't be the case, I've found that it's so often easy to write off their examples, the examples that they set for us because of the unique experiences and exposure that they had with Jesus. To look at some of the things that Jesus did through Peter, through John, through Paul, you're like, wow, that's awesome, that's inspiring, but I'm not them. That's a bit unique. And so while I can stand in admiration, while I can find their examples inspirational, there's sometimes a disconnect because I'm not one of them, right? I didn't walk with Jesus on the shores of Galilee. I didn't hear him in person, the messages on the mount. I wasn't in the boat when he calmed the sea. I didn't have the Damascus Road experience where Jesus himself stood in my way, knocked me off my, I mean, there is a disconnect, right? And yet, and yet, as you work your way through the history of the early church, as you go through the book of Acts, there is one character that for me just jumps off the page. And that is a man by the name of Stephen. And here's why I am so encouraged by his story. In contrast to the majority of the main characters we find in the Gospels and the book of Acts, Stephen is and should be very relatable because his Christian experience began and developed no different from you and I. Consider Stephen. Stephen wasn't an apostle. There's nothing in the record that implies he had even been present during the earthly ministry of Jesus. 
nor had he been an eyewitness of Jesus's death, his resurrection or ascension. It is possible Stephen might've been in Jerusalem to see the events that occurred on Pentecost, but it's unlikely he was a part of the original 120. You see, in Stephen, we have presented the first second generation Christian in scripture. Sure, by the time he's introduced to us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter six, which is where we'll be, Stephen had developed such a reputation that he was hand-selected by the apostles to serve as one of the first deacons. And yet, there is nothing about the story of Stephen that indicates he was given any type of privilege or unique experience that makes him different from you and I. This morning, we're gonna take a hard look at the life of Stephen, not only because he's relatable, but because Stephen, his life illustrates what I'm titling this morning, the fingerprints of faithfulness. In Stephen, we're gonna see a man with no advantage, no special standing, and yet he was still used by God to affect his world in such an incredible way that not only was his name known in his day, but his story is included in the pages of scripture for us to be inspired by. He's that relatable. You see, Stephen is important because he illustrates for us the exact same life that God has called you and I to live as well. Acts chapter six, if you'll turn there, beginning with verse seven, we're gonna read a few verses and then kind of develop a profile of this man, Stephen. We begin. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Well, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, who came disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, they came upon him, they seized Stephen, and they brought him to the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, who testified that this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth is gonna destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at Stephen, saw his face as the face of an angel. For some reason, and at some point, maybe by accident, could have been through the invitation, the witness of another Christian. We know at some point, while not recorded, it's logical, Stephen found himself exposed to the glorious message of the gospel. At some point, Stephen found himself in a situation where he was exposed to the teaching of God's word. He began to grapple under the weight of a growing conviction 
Keep in mind, Stephen, as he's introduced in the Greek, Stephanos, indicates he was a Hellenistic Jew living in Jerusalem at the time. He was of Jewish descent, but his name indicates he was raised in the Grecian world. There's no question Stephen tried as a Hebrew to live his life consistent with the traditions of his fathers, with the traditions of the law. You can also imagine being a Hellenistic Jew, that he also, on the other end of the equation, struggled with the allure of his culture. Whether it occurred immediately or over a period of time, at some juncture in his life, because of this growing conviction of sin, the failure of religion, the emptiness of the world, the persuasive case for Christ, Stephen reached the end and made a decision to reject religion, to reject the world, and to make the choice to be a follower of Jesus. As we all, Stephen had come to the point where he had rejected his religious self-righteousness. He was doing a bunch of good things to earn the approval of God, and he came to the conclusion that those things were never good enough. Stephen He repented of his sin. He surrendered his life to Jesus. He accepted Christ's sacrificial atonement. And in that moment of conversion, how glorious, like you and I, Stephen immediately experienced a renewal, a regeneration. The Spirit of God filled him, changed him. In that moment, his life, once shackled by sin, weighed down by the burdens of religious condemnation, had been set free. By Jesus, Stephen experienced glorious redemption. And it seems reasonable to conclude that soon after making that decision, Stephen would then make the difficult choice to go public with his faith. He would be baptized. Stephen would declare to the world, to his family, to his friends, those who were hostile, to this new and growing church, he would make the world know that he was a follower of Jesus. You can imagine, especially with the present climate, that that choice carried with it severe consequences. Friends and family rejected him. Friends were hostile towards him. Additionally, we can also reason that Stephen immediately began attending his local church. That seems logical, the one there in Jerusalem. And he would, as a result, enjoy the benefits of being part of a new family, a new community, the family of God. In the process, Stephen would receive from the church godly instruction through the faithful teaching of God's word. He would experience the joys of genuine community, benefiting from accountability of new godly influences. As Stephen continued to grow in his newfound faith, he would come to realize that being part of a church community, while it was glorious, all the things that he would receive, Stephen began to see that it was more than just receiving. There was also giving, contributing. In response to God's grace, all that Jesus had done in his life, Stephen, without title, without specific directives, simply started serving the needs of those around him. And over time, 
as Stephen continued to grow in the knowledge and grace of God, he would develop, according to the first few verses of Acts 6, he would develop a good reputation before all the people. Stephen proved teachable. He modeled a humble spirit. He remained submissive to the authorities that God had placed over him. Acts 6 is clear that because of this good reputation and servant's heart, when the need arose concerning the care of, of widows, all of the people along with the apostles universally agreed that Stephen would be an ideal candidate for this new position of deacon. As such, we know Stephen grew to become a man known. People testified that he was, quote, full of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, and faith. Literally, he was a man of conviction, a man of grace, and one in whom the Holy Spirit was demonstrating, we're told, power. We looked at that, Holy Spirit power, dynamis, dynamite. He was dynamic. This morning's text reveals that this Holy Spirit power not only equips Stephen with the gift of service to carry out the needs of his role as deacon, but we also see that it empowered him with the gift of evangelism, the ability to perform, quote, great wonders and signs. God was clearly at work through this man, Stephen. The very fact that Stephen was even having these disputes with the freedmen revealed this table waiter also had a heart for the lost. In my mind, I can see Stephen. He's a deacon, a designated doer, caring for the practical needs of the fellowship. He finishes up cleaning around the church, his job to hurry off to the local watering hole, the Dunkin' or the Starbucks, to do what? To share his faith in Jesus. Keep in mind, as in the ministry of Jesus and later the apostles, these manifestations of what we're told great wonders and signs manifested in Stephen's life to validate the anointing and his message. Stephen, no special standing. He's not an apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, didn't actually see Jesus's death on the cross, wasn't there for the rolling away of the stone and Jesus you know, the resurrection, didn't see the ascension, maybe was there for Pentecost, but we don't know. Normal dude, second generation Christian, his experience, nothing different than yours and I. And God used him in an awesome way. You can look at the apostles and say, yeah, God used them in an, in, in an awesome way. Okay, Zach, I know he wants to use me, but I'm not an apostle. But are you like Stephen? Because there's nothing about Stephen that makes him any different from you and from me. And yet God used him in a radical way. Now, the first thing that you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian's purpose, your purpose as a Christian, is to simply be faithful with the things God places before you. This is the first lesson that we can take away from Stephen's example. I have found and, and, and even experienced that Christians really do struggle. I think it's not unique to Christians. Everyone does, but for Christians in particular, people struggle with the concept of purpose. The purpose. I mean, we all want our lives 
to have meaning. The more we're under the weight of God's word, the more we understand his grace and all that God has planned, the the work he did to just save me. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to mean something. We want to make sure that our lives somehow validate the precious blood Jesus spilt to redeem us. We carry that. We know that. We experience that. And yet, maybe you can sympathize. Many grow frustrated with their present circumstances because they don't see how their present life fits in with God's overarching plan. Do you find that relatable? I've had seasons where I've experienced this because most of us have this sincere desire to see our lives genuinely matter and impact the kingdom of God. What often appears to be mundane and pointless simply because it becomes difficult to handle. Many Christians who find themselves shackled to a job in which they see no eternal value end up wondering, am I wasting my life? Am I wasting the time that I have? You know, part of this struggle rests with the conventional wisdom that in order to successfully reach a destination, one must first know the destination you're seeking to reach. Like, that's logical. Like, the way that that we work, in order to reach a destination, right, I need to know the destination I'm wanting to reach. Once, right, these two data points, where I am, where I'm going, are connected, are determined, I can then map out, right, the best, most efficient course of action. I can schedule a path to get there. Many reason, right, logically, that if God if he would just reveal his purpose for my life, he'd make things so much easier. If you would just tell me, God, why I'm here, what the plan is, what your purpose is, what my destiny is, give me the destination, then I can set out mapping a course on how to get there. Like we've all gone gone through that with career planning. Like you're never gonna get to the career you want to be in if you don't know what career you wanna be in, right? You'll just jump around from this to that, to this, to that. Set a goal, set a destination, boom, now I can get there. That's how we think. And sadly, this mindset contributes to the frustration of our lives being purposeless (laughs) because God actually works completely counterintuitive to that way of thinking. Please note that if you're waiting for God to give you the destination so you can track how to get there, it will never happen. It's not gonna happen. You see, instead of the destination determining the course of action, this is what we learn from Stephen. The course of action is actually the destination. Let me repeat that because it's a totally different way of thinking. Instead of the destination determining the course of action, it's the course of action that's actually the destination. Abraham, go to a land of promise. All right, God, I'm down. Where is it? I'll show you. Okay, so, so what, what now? Just go. 
For Abraham, the destination was going. Where he ended up was in God's hands, not his. He was called to a walk of faith. In a teaching in Luke chapter 19, on the topic of service, Jesus established a very simple principle concerning the kingdom of God. He said this, and we've all heard this passage before. If you're faithful over a little, I will make you faithful over much. We've all heard that. We all understand that. We, we've all kind of contemplated that. And while it's true that what Jesus is saying here means proven faithfulness is the only way to greater responsibilities, that's the truth. What we fail to recognize is Jesus is also telling us here that the purpose for each of our lives is not the task at hand, but being faithful in the task at hand. Don't miss that subtlety. Think about it. If you're faithful over a little, I will make you faithful over much. Little and much, and the statement comes secondary to what predominant word? Faithful. If you see God's purpose for your life as being some work that God wants you to do, as opposed to simply being faithful to do the work God has placed before you, then I hope you understand you will only find the Christian experience to be frustrating. The destination is the journey. It's not a point of locale. This is why, by the way, I think the whole idea of trying to live a, quote, purpose-driven life, while indeed packaging nicely in the self-improvement section of Amazon, it actually fosters a lot of frustration, Christian frustration, because it's not in line with the way God has structured the life of faith. Instead of the destination determining the course of action, your purpose is the course of action. It's to be faithful with whatever God has in front of you in the moment, that day, and let the next day be determined by God. Walk by faith. You see, Stephen demonstrates for us that the purpose of every believer, your purpose the reason God created you, the reason Jesus died to redeem you, your purpose is actually the act of being faithful to whatever it is God has placed in your hands and your care. Stephen, it's true. He would progress to greater responsibilities. He would begin as an unrecognized, simple servant. Then he'd be called out to be a recognized servant leader, a deacon. Then he would be an anointed evangelist. And yet never once do we see Stephen ever focusing on anything other than faithfully caring for the things God had directly placed in front of him. Stephen had no career path. Oh man, there's, there's some needs that need to be met. Lord, stir in my heart to do, all right, I'm going to do that, Lord. He's not thinking a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. I'm just going to be faithful with what's in front of me. And he's being faithful with that. And then greater needs are happening. And he's not setting some political campaign to be a deacon, to be recognized for the work that I'm doing. No, 
they just see, wow, that guy, he's serving and we need some, some servants and he's doing that. So, hey, Stephen, here's a promotion. He was never looking for the next thing. Stephen was being faithful with the present thing. Your purpose, if you want to have meaning and purpose, just think about today and what God has called you to do. If you trust God with your life, you need to recognize this morning that no matter how what you might say are trivial or pointless or mundane things, those tasks in front of you, they might be those things. And yet God has placed them in front of you. He has placed them in your life for a reason. Oh, I had dreams of doing this. I felt God had called me the, and then I, and then I got pregnant. And I had these kids. And my day is filled with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, trying to keep my sanity, and maybe working in a shower. Is this really God's plan for my life? And we feel like we're spinning in circles. But here's the thing, that is. That's the task in front of you. Now, that doesn't mean that there might come the day that something changes. But God will do that when it's time. You might be in a job that you absolutely hate. You hate the people you work with. You hate the drive to it. You hate the cubicle. You hate windows. You're like, why can't I work on an apple? We all get it. I understand that. But you're in this dynamic. You're like, I hate this. And then you spiritualize it. I'm wasting my life. No, you're not. God has you there, right? He's sovereign. So be faithful. Let God change tomorrow. You be faithful with today. You know, the second thing that we should note before I get there, before I get there, please understand the most glorious words that you ever want to hear Jesus say to you. The most glorious words you ever want to hear Jesus say is this. Quote, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Those are the words you want to hear Jesus say to you. You don't want to hear depart because I never knew you. That's, that's bad. But well done, good and faithful servant. That's glorious, right? That means what comes next is awesome as opposed to the departing which is hell. Literally, it's hell. Actual, it's hell. Not like figurative, it's hell. Well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what, what I find to be amazing about that is it would, it would appear that the evaluation method of heaven, the way that Jesus will evaluate your life, focuses on what? Well done, good and accomplished servant. No, no. Well done, good, and successful. No. It's well done, good, and faithful. The evaluation method of your life, when Jesus evaluates your life, it's not what you've done. It's whether or not you've been faithful. It's faithfulness, not accomplishment. Second point, second thing that you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian should expect, you and I should expect the world to treat you 
like they treated Jesus. Though Stephen's ministry role was church-centric, caring for the needs within the church body, as mentioned, it would seem that Stephen had a heart for the lost to preach the gospel. Some view Stephen as an evangelist. Others make the case that he was the first apologist. doesn't really matter either way. What we do know is that his target audience became these Jews from a a synagogue known as the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Now, history tells us that this was a prominent synagogue in Jerusalem that had branches, satellite campuses, in Cyrene, which was an important African city in the province of Libya, Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, as well as Cilicia. Needless to say, this was a tough audience. On a side note, Cilicia was the Roman province located and the southern half of modern-day Turkey. Tarsus is the hometown of a man that's introduced to us in the next chapter, a man by the name of Saul, who would later become Paul. So of this crew, of those of the synagogue of the freemen that Stephen is debating, we can logically conclude on the other side of the table, as they're drinking their Starbucks coffee, is the soon-to-be Apostle Paul. That's very cool to me. Now Luke tells us, that these men came, quote, disputing with Stephen. The word disputing in the Greek presents the idea that they would gather to debate matters of theology. And in the process of their conversations, the text tells us Stephen, his efforts bore some fruit. Luke says, quote, they were not able to resist or to withstand or oppose him. And then he lists, lists two reasons why. He says, for the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. The word wisdom, it's the Greek word Sophia, meaning full of intelligence. Stephen was able to present sub substantiated arguments. He was able to, to lay out facts. He, he could defend his positions. He could talk theology and doctrine through a combination of, of scripture and logic and reason. He went into these situations armed. But his situation's no different than us, right? How did he gain this knowledge and this understanding? He studied. He was well prepared. I find it tragic that there are too many stupid people who speak for Christianity. It's a shame. On Fox News, they've got a Rolodex of stupid Christians who present no arguments that I find substantiating. On a side note, moving on, before I, I get in trouble, the word spirit here, wisdom, full of intelligence, and spirit. It's how he spoke. It's pneuma, from which we obviously get the word the Holy Spirit, but the word can also refer to a person's pleasant disposition. Though his audience perceived Stephen to be a pleasant person, we understand that without even knowing it, the group of men he was arguing with were experiencing the power and person of the Holy Spirit working in and through his life. In a sense, Stephen was being the salt of the earth. You can imagine that in addition to the soundness of his arguments, what made Stephen so persuasive was that he was able to present an intellectual position in a way that the opposing side of the argument didn't feel attacked or need to respond in a defensive manner. Apparently, 
the way Stephen argued was just as persuasive as the arguments he was making. We need a bit more of that in Christian circles, don't we? Sadly, the arguments of many today, many Christians, get lost because of pride and ego and attitude. Never forget, the goal is not to just win the argument. The goal is to win the soul. That's the whole point of the conversation to begin with. Luke indicates there were those that he was having these disputes with that were not able to resist. Fruit, converts. But there was also a contingency who not only resisted, but grew vindictive in the process. It's true, a hurt ego coupled with a pricked conscience can be a very dangerous combination. What's interesting about this story is that we see the exact same playbook being used to target Stephen that was used some four years earlier to target Jesus. Look at their strategy. We're told, quote, they secretly induced men, they set up false witnesses, and they stirred up the people. This means that they literally bribed men to commit a crime by spreading false accusations, false rumors. They claimed that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God and the temple, the law, their customs. They were twisting his words. It would seem their goal was to incite a mob to act against Stephen without fully knowing what Stephen had done worthy of such an outcry. This reaction to Stephen, you should note, it didn't represent the general sentiment of the masses towards Stephen, but was instead driven by the ill will of a few people who found Stephen to be offensive to their conscience. They lashed out against the messenger, really because they hated and resisted the message. May I ask this morning, Christian, I want you to think about this for a moment. Take a minute, contemplate it. As a Christian, what type of relationship do you expect to have with this world? A friendly one? Like what type of relationship are you expecting as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how do you expect the world to treat you? What's the baseline? Like do you expect the world to be as tolerant of your beliefs as they want you to be of theirs? Like, do you think that that's a a street that goes both ways? Like, what are your expectations? Seriously. Please remember about Stephen. He did absolutely nothing wrong. Like, what he was doing was not wrong. He believed in Jesus. He was a faithful churchgoer. He even volunteered. We're given no indication Stephen went out proselytizing. He was enjoying conversation, just disputes, sharing his faith with those who were interested. And while his speech, we're told, as those who testified, was meek and his life above reproach, because he spoke the truth, Stephen immediately became a polarizing figure. Some accepted him, but others resisted. Please understand this. The reason that people find the truth to be so offensive is that the truth by its very nature is exclusive 
and divisive. Like, by definition, truth, what does it do? Truth distinguishes between what is right and what is wrong. And since truth is the one position that refuses to accept all other positions as being equal, the speaker of truth gets branded as being offensive and therefore can't be tolerated. Have you ever wondered why is it that it's Christians that are taking the brunt of this relativistic slash nihilistic society? Like, why are we the only people that seem to get picked on? Called bigots, called racists, called intolerant because of our religious positions. The same talking heads that blast Christians. Do you ever hear them say a word against Islam? They don't. Here's why. It's a falsehood. We're speaking the truth. I can be tolerant of what's false, but what's true? Ah, that's a different story. Stephen, he illustrates an important reality, something I find very relevant for today. How people respond to truth directly determines how they respond to the person speaking truth. I'll, re I'll reiterate, I'll, I'll restate that. How people respond to truth directly determines how they'll respond to the person speaking the truth. And the general lesson presented in the way that the world treated Jesus. If a person accepts truth, they'll accept the truth speaker. But if a person rejects truth, Christians should go ahead and expect that person to not just reject you, but actively resist you. Like, it's a simple fact that we live in a culture that is growing more and more intolerant concerning fundamental Christian truth and the Christians who speak those truths. Today, even ESPN, which should be the worldwide leader of sports, they will br actively brand, smear, and ostracize from society any person who takes a position other than the full acceptance and celebration of homosexual marriage. It, you want to be gay? That's fine. You want to get married? Whatever. But if you don't accept it and celebrate it, it's not just allowing it or thinking we live in a country where you're free to do it. If you're not celebrating it, you are ostracized and branded as being a bigoted homophobe, unfit to have a voice in the public square. The world is growing more and more that direction. And keep in mind, right? What was Stephen's only crime? Stephen's fundamental crime was this. He refused to leave his beliefs at church. See, that's what the world wants us to do. Keep it in church. But Stephen didn't. Though Stephen would lose his life because he spoke words of truth to a group of people who didn't want to hear them. Please remember what Jesus himself warned in John 15. In verse 20, he said, Remember the word I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will. It's a promise also persecute you. Stephen, a normal man, he counted the cost. 
He was faithful with what God had placed in front of him. Thus his life was filled with incredible meaning, incredible purpose. But he also wasn't afraid to stand for the truth. Not in an annoying way, not to be right, out of love for the lost. He wasn't out there being a jerk, a jerk for Jesus. He was out there out of compassion, out of love, to the point that some were converted and everyone concluded there was wisdom and a spirit. People encountered and gained a taste of God by interacting, but that did not make him immune for those who had that taste and became violent towards it. The third and final thing you should note from Stephen's example is that a Christian's commission, when it's all said and done, we've talked about purpose, we've talked about persecution, but a Christian's commission is to simply be a witness by shining the light into the world. Ultimately, as we read, this mob got stirred up by falsehoods and false rumors. They bring Stephen before the council, the Sanhedrin. He's being slandered and scorned. We were given no evidence. He's speaking out. He'll get his chance. The next chapter records a sermon he gives. And while all of this is happening, while he's being raked up and down, no one standing to his defense, false accusations. We're told in the middle of all this, everything just kind of pauses for a minute because one of the most peculiar things in all of the Bible takes place. Luke tells us, as they're looking at Stephen, that his face looked like the face of an angel. And keep in mind, I, I doubt that anyone in that room had ever seen an angel. Kind of an interesting observation. And Luke is getting his account from eyewitnesses who were present that day, more likely the Apostle Paul. So we get like this phrase, his face, he had the face as the face of an angel. It's being used by Luke here to describe the fact that his countenance in this moment visibly for all to see was perceived to be the countenance of a man who had a heavenly nature. That's why they use this phrase, an angel. They couldn't describe it. There was a heavenly glow. And the reaction of the council, we're told that, that they looked steadfastly at Stephen. In the Greek, this word steadfastly means they fastened their eyes upon. I can see that the mouths kind of dropped and they just, that's weird. That's not normal. Is it just me or is his face glowing? Like it's just this radical moment. What they were witnessing was so dramatic. They stared at Stephen. Consider for just a minute how this may have happened. As a faithful servant, Stephen had been a witness for Jesus indeed. We've seen that, right? He was a servant, gets promoted to deacon, designated servant. So he's, he's been a servant. As an evangelist, he's been a witness for Jesus in the world. How? In word. So he's been a witness indeed, and he's been a witness in word. But in this moment, right? 
Something totally different is taking place. Stephen now is being a witness, undoubtedly, right? But he's being a witness by simply being. Is Stephen doing anything? Is he doing anything? No. He's been a witness by deed, but in this moment, he's not doing a thing. And he's been a witness in word. But in this moment, is he speaking anything? No. But he's being a witness, isn't he? To the point that they're staring at him. They're shocked. They're amazed. So Stephen here is not doing anything. He's not saying anything, but he's still being a witness, isn't he? But he's being a witness by just being who he is. Like, because we realize that words and deeds don't always reveal the true heart of a person, while it's true that the real heart of a person always reveals itself through words and deeds, the idea of being a witness, I hope you realize it's not predicated upon what you do, nor is it predicated upon what you say. You can fake it. You can fake the part. It's, it's the truth. But being a witness manifests by who you really are. Like it's a reality of life that who you are will always determine what you do ultimately in the end. Who Stephen was in this instance while he wasn't doing or saying anything was on display for everyone to see. Stephen was a man filled with what? The light of the world. A man filled with the spirit of God. And that was shining forth. Let me ask, who are you? Like really, like who are you? Are you the person you see in the mirror? If you are, that's kind of depressing. It's very depressing for me. I had my my third anniversary in May of turning 30. Like I'm just, I'm going to stop counting. It's just the rate of decay. The rate of, the rate of death. Your birthday. It's a twisted thing. It's like you're one year closer to dying. It's why they make you do what? Blow out your own candle. Think about it. You're extinguishing your own life. Put 33 candles and then they're gone. This could be it. It's all morbid. But who are you? Are you the person in the mirror? Because you're not. You're not the person in the mirror. That's not you. Like, are you more than flesh and bone? (laughs) Are you more than your dysfunctional personality? I know many of you. I'll say that, honestly. Or, or are you more than, than maybe your genetic predispositions? Because we all have those too, don't we? Things we struggle with because we were born to struggle with them. That's not fair. Like, who are you? In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul answered this question for himself. This is what he said. He said, me, I, who, th- this person, who I am, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who's living in me. By the indwelling spirit of God and the life with which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, this, this idea 
of Christ living in me. That's weird. Like, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Like, th- like that whole notion, ask Jesus into your heart. What? Into my heart? A dude into my heart? Like, what? Like, the, the, like the, the lingo in and of itself, it just seems peculiar. It seems weird. There's kind of a disconnect. It's just strange. This is why when teaching on this concept, Jesus uses a different illustration that everyone could get their mind around. He uses light. Like in John 8, verse 12, Jesus He not only defined himself as the light of the world, but then he said that the person who follows him would not walk in darkness, but have, possess, what? The light of life. With this in mind, we should understand that upon salvation, upon regeneration, this darkness, this dark void left in the human soul, deadened by sin, is brought to life. Through what? The indwelling light of God. Paul would even state in Ephesians 2, he says, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He fills us with his light. You have been filled with this light. But keep in mind, as a follower of Jesus, you are not only light bearers, but you're now responsible to shine that light into the world. Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus commanded those who have the light of life to, quote, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is where this strange detail about Stephen, that his face shone in this heavenly countenance, it it proves helpful. Though what is clearly happening to him was some type of supernatural occurrence, don't overlook the obvious lesson. Stephen was doing or saying nothing to manufacture this heavenly countenance. Stephen was being a witness because the light of the world came shining from his life for all to see. Stephen, all he had to do to be a witness was sit there and allow God to do the rest, to allow God to shine through. You know, we've all been given the commission to go into the world as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And understand that commission shouldn't be cumbersome because it's not something we go to do. It's something we're called to be. As a light bearer, understand Your job is not to go into the world and shine the light. Scripture doesn't say that. What does the Bible say? Go into the world and do what? Let our light shine. It's something you allow to happen, not something you do. This is what's so challenging about this story. Since Stephen's experience began and developed no different from from yours and mine, There's no reason that God can't also work through your life in an equally powerful and dramatic way. Do you believe that? This is why there's so much we can learn through Stephen's example, that he demonstrates for us the fingerprints of faithfulness. He was faithful with what was in front of him. He was recognized in what he did and what he said, but beyond all of it, 
The greatest witness was who he was. No man could take that away. You could tape his mouth up and, and bind him. But Jesus came shining forth. If you want this morning to hear as Stephen did that day from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. If you, upon death, want to look up to heaven and see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, emulate his example. Stephen, he made a decision to follow Jesus. He counted the cost. Following his conversion, he, he, he laid for himself a solid spiritual foundation. He attended and contributed to a local church. He trusted God with his future by just remaining faithful with whatever God placed in front of him. He didn't want anything more than what God had given him that day. Beyond this, he had a heart for the lost. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth outside of the walls of the church. It wasn't a Sunday Christianity for Stephen. It was so a part of his DNA that even standing with the, in front of the very men that would kill him, he shined forth. He shone the light. Please understand this morning that if you take all of this, if you take Stephen's example seriously, I want my life to matter. I want my life to count. I want to be used by God. Please note, being faithful, there is a danger in being faithful. Stephen was faithful, right? And yet his faithfulness led him into the darkest situation of his life. What happened because Stephen was faithful? Life was good. Things fell into place. The dominoes rolled out. No, Stephen was faithful. His life had meaning, his life had purpose, but he found himself what? Being lied about. He found himself being slandered, falsely accused, sitting before a hostile court ultimately stoned to death. And yet, this is what's amazing. His simple faithfulness afforded Stephen the opportunity to shine the brightest. It led him into darkness. Luke chapter 11, verse 33, Jesus said, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket. But what do you do with a light? You put it up on a lampstand that those who come may see the light. If you want to be faithful, if you want your light to shine, that often means God will lead you into areas of greater darkness. Not to destroy you or to extinguish the light, but for you to have more impact. Because those who are faithful with little Jesus will make faithful over great, over much. What type of Christian do you want to be, friend? One without purpose, one without meaning, one that feels like you're wandering around, one that's lukewarm, one that's a Sunday Christian, one that's life doesn't matter. I'll speak for myself. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord knowing that the evaluation of God will not be what we do in our service, but by being faithful in the things God has brought our way to do. It was that concept that changed my life. It really did. I was a youth pastor. Like I, 
I spent time with middle schoolers. Willingly. And there were times we were like, God, what am I doing? Am I wasting my life here? And it was like, no, you're being faithful with what I put in front of you. You just be faithful. Because that's how I'll evaluate. It's not accomplishment. It's faithfulness. What's amazing is I look around this room, and there are a lot of people that are adults that I had as middle schoolers, men and women who are serving Jesus and are accomplishing incredible things for the Lord. Don't despise the day of small things. That job might be terrible, but that's the job God gave you. And you might hate your boss, but Jesus said to love your enemy. You might feel like you're not doing anything. Well, what are you supposed to be doing? For me, I want to be like Stephen. No matter what may come, and there's, there's dark clouds on the horizon. That's the truth. This world is rejecting the truth, and there's a growing resistance to those who speak and stand for truth. But I just want to be faithful and to let that light that God placed in me shine forth. Ain't nothing I can do to make that happen, but be. Be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And so, Father, that's what we ask this morning.